At Green Mountain Dental Group, they treat you like family. Located in Lakewood, you know they're the best damn family-operated dentist in the metro area. They're just 15 minutes outside of downtown. They're going to take fantastic care of you, and they're huge sports fans just like all of us, so they can talk to you about what's ever going on in the sports landscape and make sure that your teeth are in the best possible condition they can be in, not just by taking care of you with that great dental care that they've got and making sure that you feel like you're one of them, but also by hooking you up with a free Sonicare toothbrush when you schedule a cleaning x-ray and exam. So make sure you get that done and check out our friends over at Green Mountain Dental Group today. And go ball in the air, deep right center go. field. Two-run home run, Trevor Story. Way back, Myers, watch it go. Chuck Nasty. Two-run home run, David Dahl. And Nolan drives this high in the air, deep left field. Take a good look, you won't see it for long. I don't want to lose your love tonight. Welcome into the DNVR Rockies podcast presented by Strava Craft Coffee. Remember to use that promo code DNVR20 because you'll get 20% off your entire purchase of that CBD infused, deliciously rich and potentially life altering Strava Craft Coffee. I am your host, Drew Creaseman. I am the managing editor of DNVR Rockies. With me, as always, is beat writer Patrick Lyons, and on this episode, we are going to attempt to do the impossible, or at least the thing that has not yet been done. That's right, folks. We are going to try to answer the question of how the Colorado Rockies can finally tackle and overcome the Coors Field conundrum, as you had dubbed it to me, Patrick. I, I'm sure maybe that that term has been out there before. We used it for the. Uh, DJ LeMahieu article that I published on dnvr.com. Hopefully everyone's subscribers went out and checked that one out. But that one's free. So if you're not a subscriber, give a read and it'll give you a little bit of an example of the kind of stuff that we're going to be producing, especially here over the offseason, because it's not going to be the final article that has the Coors Field conundrum as a part of it. There's a lot of data here that I uncovered as regards to DJ LeMayhew, and we're going to leave that conversation for a later date. But Patrick, there's a lot of data that we've been looking at with a lot of Rockies players, guys who've come and gone. And the way it's starting to emerge, certain patterns, some of them frustrating about the statistics, and I focused on those as well, but also some of them where maybe you can start to see a little bit of a light at the end of the tunnel where maybe there's something the Rockies can do about this. So, it, it, But it's a great big conversation, and it's going to be fun diving into it this offseason. It is. Colorado is probably the most unique of the four uh, major sports that we have here in America. They are probably in the most unique situation um, of, of any of those 120 or so teams. So, of course, if you just say, well, there are three other teams in town in Denver that that play professional sports, um, but they train, you know, here up at altitude. 
and it, that does have an impact on guys, but their seasons are obviously much shorter. And you also have an element and facet to the game that is much different. You know, they're, uh, I, I don't get involved too much in the analytics of, you know, pro football. Um, and I, so I don't really know if there's a lot that goes into throwing a ball 40 yards downfield, you know, the impact that that might have, you know, throwing it up at in power field versus down at Hyden's field in, in, in Pittsburgh. But, <laughs> right. but it's, it's I, just I, drastically I for different goals. It, it comes up. I, I don't think for anything else. It's that right. would be true. Right. Yeah. And that's, and that's a, a, a rare occurrence. So yeah, there is a factor in that, that obviously is involved in football, but with basketball, you know, it's, it's again, the same general thing. And it's an adjustment that you can kind of make on the fly. If you're like, Oh man, I, I, I notice uh, I'm a little too aggressive or I need to take off a little bit of touch you know, on my, my three point shot, whatever it may be, you can make those adjustments because they're so minuscule. But when it comes to the game of baseball and you've got this small little white pill that just gets thrown at extreme, you know, miles per hour, it gets hit with massive exit velocity and the, the impact that that can have on a game and a field, because the field, the, the size of the field is, is different all the time. And, and no one's just throwing the baseball. They are trying to put spin and movement on it. So there are all these facets and all of these elements that the Colorado Rockies have to deal with that is unlike any other professional sports team in, frankly, in all of North America. Yeah. And one of the things I want to do with this conversation, Patrick, is make sure that we do two things. One, recognize exactly what you just said, that uniqueness exists. You, you, you have to recognize it. And two, not get that confused with, because oftentimes when, when I've written and talked about this, you know, uh, it's been confused with making excuses for why the Colorado Rockies are bad. Now, there's a fine line between an excuse and a reason. An excuse, there's nothing you can do about it. A reason, there's something you can do about it. And for me, this falls very firmly into the category of a reason. This is one of many reasons why the Colorado Rockies have been bad. Among poor management, lack of budget, many other things that you could throw into the category. But if you don't recognize, just like you would say to me, if you don't recognize poor management or lack of budget, <laughs> As a factor in the Colorado Rockies being bad, you're not being honest with yourself, and you're not. If you don't recognize the Colorado Rockies' unique ballpark situation and the fact that they haven't answered, they don't. They haven't figured out a formula for why these numbers get thrown off so bad, for why some guys seem to be able to handle it extraordinarily well and some guys seem to completely become shells of themselves – they don't have an answer to that question. And what our goal needs to be is finding one. Now, we may not be able to do that here and, and through the course of, of many articles. In fact, the odds are pretty low that we're going to be able to come up with a definitive answer to that question. But again, I want to steer people away from this being, oh, it's an excuse for why the Rockies are bad. And Mora, this is a thing that has to be solved. And the only way to solve it is one, to admit it's real. And two, to understand it with all of the data and information and history that we have available to us so that we can identify patterns where we can maybe figure out who is a Coors Field product, who's maybe a, a Coors Field mirage, who's maybe 
would be the exact same player anywhere else. And there, there's one bit of data that I want to point everyone to. I, I think, you know, I'm, I'm hoping that our collection of research this offseason will surpass this. But to this point, I think the best research done on this topic was done by my old friend Matt Gross over at Purple Row in an article he wrote called, I can't remember the exact headline. I'll find it right now. It was either the numbers are lying or the Rockies are playing at an extraordinary disadvantage. That was, I think I added a couple of words there. It's a little long for a headline. That was the premise. Um, and he discovered the premise that we've been operating on ever since and that most even WRC plus advocates, uh, people like Manny Rendal would come on and admit it. Yes, it undersells the Rockies. And what he discovered in that piece was on average, any given guy is probably being undersold three to five points. And I think what most people have done with that information is go, okay, so when Nolan Arnold is at 125, it's maybe three to five points off. He really should be at most a 130. And what I think I'm starting to discover here, Patrick, and what we're really going to dive into is that it doesn't operate the same for everybody. And when you break it down, you know, averages when you get into that big and you're looking at the entire history of the Colorado Rockies, you're saying on average, WRC plus is underrating a guy three to five points. Well, that means that there are some guys it's not underrating that much. And some guys who are way over that mark, that's how you have to come to that, that middle number. And so I, I think what we're discovering here is that for individuals like Nolan Arenado or Juan Pierre, they're not going to have the same output, but the numbers are going to treat them the same. And it's it's an interesting question to try to find the answer to. Right. So what you're referring to is something called standard deviation, where um, it's roughly like 50 to 75 percent are clustered in the general. It, it's basically, if you think about a, a bell curve, right? Like where the, where the curve goes up nice and high, like that's where the bulk of everything is. But if you look on the two ends that are really low to the ground, those are, you know, the early innovators and people that, you know, wait until the last second to do something. That's such a small percentage, but there is a group that, you know, where it's not three to five points above or below. It's more like nine to 15 points above or below. And that's, that's one of those things that's hard to calculate. And you're right. Colorado just hasn't, you know, figured out a way how to manage Coors Field in that way. And I think they're, they've only just started, they've only begun, you know, the, the Monfort Breidich, and actually I think it was Bud Black who said these specific words that, you know, the organization really only just started. Uh, he said this at the end of season media availability uh, last October. That was actually what it was called, uh, that to, is. Be, to be clear. You were specifically instructed not to call it anything else. <laughs> end of season media availability. And, you know, just saying like, yeah, you know what, may, we may have started. He didn't say we started late, but he said, yeah, you know, it's only been going up for this long. So they've yeah. only started to scratch the surface. But you've you've seen finally something Something happened with Jeff Breidich when they put up the barrier. That was something, right? right. Now, it, it doesn't necessarily mean, you know, I, I think we all interpreted at first to just be, okay, wow, uh, the Rockies feel that by putting, you know, that, that barrier up, that will give them some type of strategic advantage. You know, any, 
again, both teams are playing in the same field, but maybe they felt their pitchers were giving up more balls in that area or, um, you know, maybe, maybe their guys hit more balls, you know, line drives out there. And so it's better to have run, runners on base than to actually have those home runs. So for them, it would be an advantage to bring some of those home run numbers down, or maybe uh, they found it would be the same statistically as far as how many runs they would score, but maybe it would actually save them millions of dollars in arbitration, which is a crazy <laughs> thing to think about. But again, that, that, that translates to money and money can translate to, you know, winning more ball games and putting a better product on the field. Um, but, but maybe a, a second option, it wasn't so much that it was going to lead to more wins was ultimately that they just wanted to change the dimensions and get some new data to get some new information out there and say, well, what happens now if our stadium looks like this? Cause maybe what Jeff Breidich and, and, you know, the front office really wants is a reconfiguration of Coors Field and Dick Monfort, you know, is, isn't really interested in that. And that would be fine. Um, you know, I, I think when, when I, when I first really started following the Rockies closely, the idea that they would continue to have the same interlocking CR and the white with purple pinstripe uniforms. Was, <laughs> I first thought of like, like, Oh my gosh, like really? Like you're not going to, you know, change with the modern times and things. And now we've gotten to a, 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 a period where you go, yeah, that's how great is that? How great is that? That every five years you don't have to go out and buy a new jersey, new hats, et cetera, et cetera. And so, on one hand, you go, Dick Monford, I applaud you for staying the course with a with a with a really good logo, solid. Maybe not one of the best, definitely not one of the worst, but it has stuck around the longest, and so it it grows on you in that way. Um, so we we applaud you for that. But maybe on the other hand, you say, well maybe you do need to make some changes in the configurations of Coors Field. And maybe that barrier was that, that first step in that process to learning more about Coors Field, getting more data and bringing about even, even, well, maybe not even more change, but bringing about important change in the future. Do totally. I think like, like, okay. So I've been looking into all, all these numbers and now, now you've got me like what always sunny, uh, like at the <laughs> at chalkboard going up and pointing at Charlie. All. Charlie and always sunny. Now, I think you're totally right. I can't prove it yet, but I think it, it, I actually do think it was an analytic decision, one, to put up the Breidich barrier. I think that's related to an article that's referenced in, in my DJ LeMayhew piece, again, by our friend, second shout out of the show, Manny Rendawa, who did his extraordinary work on cheap home runs and which ballparks give up the most cheap home runs. He wrote that in 2017 the first year of the Breidich barrier and uh, Coors Field for that collection, I think so since 2015, that's when StatCast data uh, exists from. Uh, and, and there's a lot of teams that have done that where we're getting yeah. that question asked. A lot of teams do that. You have the right to do that. You Even if you're not putting in a new bullpen, San Francisco did it in Oracle Park, the Mets did it at City Field a few years ago. You could just do it because you want to do it. They did it at Comerica Park right away because yep. the outfield depth was just too deep. So you can do it whenever you want. Yep. And and I think that that particular thing, the cheap home runs, and I think Colorado was ninth on that list, which feels much more in line with uh, reality than I think how they're often talked about. Uh, it's just tougher to get a cheap home run at Coors Field than it is at in Houston, which was number one, New York, which we know about, uh, you know, Baltimore, uh, several other places. But uh, 
the the easiest area of the ballpark to get a cheap home run at Coors Field before the Breitage barrier is where the is where the barrier is now. And a lot of those have now turned into doubles, as you said. It's it's put guys on base. It's not taking away hits, but it is. Uh, I, I do think it's taken away runs. I do think it's helped normalize the environment. And to your point, I I totally agree, man. I think they needed a different set of data to say, okay, we why is it whenever we go out, we think this guy is a guy we're going to bring in and he's going to hit here. He doesn't or pitch sometimes that too, but you know, whatever it may be, like there's just an extraordinary record of that happening. Why does that keep happening? Well, maybe it has something to do with the dimensions of the environment that it's throwing off our numbers. So if we put up the barrier and, and I'd love to see them, we've talked about this a little bit and, and to wild the innocence point here, change the dimensions even more dramatically to find out because, you know, the, and, and as we've talked about, the only way to do, you can't bring the fences in at Coors Field. You, you can't get rid of seats. Uh, you have to move home field forward with, it, with uh, home field, home plate forward a little bit, which is actually great in a couple of ways for your pitchers because it makes the outfield smaller and it adds a little bit more foul territory there. Uh, now a few more homers are going to go out. And so it may just be that at altitude, this balance, there may not be the right balance here, folks. I, I, I'm not claiming out the right answer, but I do think moving home plate forward might be the biggest puzzle piece to, to normalizing Coors Field to the extent that you can trust your internal and the external analytics much more when evaluating your players. And then you're going to get fairer free agency and trade markets and all this other stuff's going to open up for you. Yeah, there, there's there's so many interesting angles to look at if, if you think about changing again the the, the construction of, of the outfield walls, whether it's it's the height or the depth of them. Like you said, you know, moving home plate forward, maybe I think you could possibly even move it back, you know, ever so slightly. I mean, we're only talking like a foot tops, you know, because it's tight down those lines. Um, you know, they who knows what they can do uh, exactly, but but you're right, like you you could mess around with that. Uh, I know you you couldn't really you know those views out in in the left field bleachers you know those seats are are really low down so if if the left field wall got closer you couldn't necessarily make it that much higher um, and if you can't there you certainly could elsewhere you know it it would be a shame if you know there there's not too many big plays in the outfield where you see Rockies players or even opposing players robbing home runs in fact it's something that rarely happens at Coors Field. Come to think of it, like it seems like it happens at one time, and then people just stop. Then Tapia last year, and that's it. <laughs> that's yeah, the entire list. Camden Yards seems like it happened a lot. I mean, you can remember that Mike Trout play, of course. You know, in his second season, that really put him on the map. Um, that's a lower fence. Happens all the time in right field at Fenway Park. You know, right. because you've got the incredibly low fence, and you, yeah, you've got guys flying over there all yeah. the time, which is great. But I, I don't think anyone. Again, it's much like with the nets that went up this past off season, uh, and had had gone up at the beginning of 2019 too, where people were worried, ah, it's gonna, it's gonna impinge my enjoyment of the game. Like I'm not gonna be able to see the lines quite as clearly and the nets in my face. No one said anything in all of no. 2019. Well, no one will pass out there in left field. <laughs> yeah, you could get creative. In fact, that is something, uh, I think the Metrodome, they used to have a, a plexiglass that was out there. I can remember, I think it might have even been the 87 World Series 
uh, with the twins, Kirby Puckett, you know, making a big catch up against the plexiglass uh, and just bouncing right off. So you could get creative. Maybe you just have a, you know, slightly bigger wall in, in center field so that it, you know, that keeps balls out of there. But it's exciting to think, you know, what they could actually do for that. But I, I, I would imagine any changes that they would make, it would have to increase seating capacity uh, very possibly so that they can, you know, justify the, the investment that they put in it uh, so that they can get some money back from from new seats. But, you know, there's a really interesting article on ESPN uh, that just came out today looking at the ballparks that are going to be used for the American League playoffs and the National League playoffs, uh, as we talked about on previous uh, podcasts from last week. And, you know, you could see, you know, what uh, Minute Maid Park looks like with an overlay of, like, Dodger Stadium. And you go, oh, my God, there's so many F7s in – at Chavez Ravina Dodger Stadium that are going to be home runs in the Crawford boxes. And conversely, all of that foul territory in Oakland that, you know, a little bit here and there gets pitchers out of jams. Every Anyone who has had, sat in a really close seat at Coors Field behind home plate and like, oh, man, I got a ball that I almost ended up catching. Well, what if Tony Walters made that catch? Like, yeah. what does that do to yeah. the two-out rally? What does that do with a runner on second and third? So it's – countless possibilities if you change those dimensions of course field yeah and, and i just think you have to i don't know how again looking at the data there's one thing i'm absolutely 100 percent sure of very rarely will you sit hear me say that very rarely i know i know i often speak as though I, people think i'm you know i'm absolutely sure of things but you don't hear me actually declare absolutes very often and here's one the outfield is too damn big it's just too big. It's too big to be covered by your defense. It's too big to create regular offense. It's too big. It's, <laughs> so whatever the solution is, the outfield's got to get smaller. And and there are a few other and whatever you got to do to figure it out, higher walls, more seats, Falta, all this other stuff needs to be in service of make the outfield smaller. Yeah, and and so you go, well if the outfield is smaller, then there's going to be more home runs unless the walls are bigger, which you can't do because they're going to obstruct views out in left field. So there's a way to figure out. You could also, I know they just glass wall, baby. <laughs> that you, you, or, or you can just, you can lower the, the, the field too. You know, you've, you've got that, that potential too, True. where you bring that down, you know, just a little bit. And, and again, just get creative with, with technology that's out there. It might not be, you know, you know, the best thing in, in the yeah, world. But... You're on the podcast now to explain to us, because now I'm just absolutely fascinated. And I'm sure there is somebody that probably someone we know who could walk us through what it would take to lower Coors Field deeper into the ground. And I just, yeah, like. They've <laughs> done that. I mean, we've, in fact, I think it was last year at the Sabre Banquet. You were, were at that one. Tearing stuff out. Yeah. They, they it, The Coors Field was just, was just dirt. And you just see these tractors and stuff all over the place. It was so strange. But they were able to, you know, you know, put new new sod on and, and whatnot. So I think you could, you know, have that potential. I think, and you know, this might not be ideal. I think this might not be ideal. What I'm about to suggest, but you know, I, I have seen it elsewhere. And as, once you get used to something, you just okay. go, oh yeah, I get. <laughs> like I guess it is weird, but right. I mean, you you could have you could have netting as part of your outfield. I. I I wasn't sure if that was allowed, and I was just thinking so, about that earlier when you were talking. I think that would be dope because then you would replace, right, 
the home run right well that's what, one of the things you're talking about one of the reasons why it's great that the walls are kind of at the general height they are it's like that perfect height to go and rob a home run and if we're kind of taking that away from people let's give them something back i thought about the plexiglass things i've been watching too much hockey slamming into the plexiglass to be fun but the netting i want the spider-man catches and then it you know, creates a whole highlight for sure yeah and i and again it's it's not ideal and it's like an awful idea like i, I hate that i had to say it but sure. if my job is to explore all possibilities that's one of them now i have seen it and i've only seen it in, in one place i'm sure there could be others out there i don't think there's any in major league baseball um but in hartford at dunkin donuts park now, part part of it was because it was so poorly constructed, uh, and and Rockies fans know there was that season where uh, the Hartford Yard Goats were on the road for the entirety of I think it was the 2016 season. David Dahl, Ryan McMahon, they were just on the road because the ballpark was just sitting there and no one was working on it because there's all these lawsuits. So right field, because there is a street that goes behind right field, they. Right field was like maybe, I don't know, 298 feet down the line, something insane. So I, I saw Roberto Ramos hit a ball that went over the wall, went over the right fielder's head, but then it bounced off of the netting, came back into play, and he's on second base. I'm like, wait, how? So literally there was, it was two decks where, you know, you, you hit it over the first deck, right? You're like, that's a home oh, run. Wow. But you had to hit it over the second deck. You had to hit a, a a second level home run. So if it falls in between there, if it hits the facing or if it falls in between in that netting, it's back into play, which is wow. crazy. Now I don't think they would do that, you know, at, at Coors Field with the second deck, but that was an example of it in play. I know again at, at the Metrodome where they had the baggie, you know, the baggies and, and balls would yep. bounce off that. That was a strange scenario situation that both teams had to play with. It's crazy to think about it. Wrigley Field that you have, you know, a ball, you know, goes in the air, you're trying to track it down. And then all of a sudden you're in the middle of, you know, filming Jumanji three and you got to dig <laughs> the baseball out or put your hands up or say, right. did the ball roll out? Wait, cause if it rolls out, I got to play it. I can't look like an idiot and throw my hands right. up. All that. So baseball is unique in that way. And, and I think that's what makes the game great. But first you have to embrace something crazy. That sounds like a bad idea to then eventually go, yeah, no, that that's great. So, Maybe that's one of those solutions to, again, both make the outfield area smaller, but keep balls in the ballpark a little more frequently. Well, if you've got an idea out there, send it to us. Send us your redesign, your reimagination and Nope. Of course, field. And uh, I'll, we'll, we'll try to do the same. We'll see if we can come up with, with a, a singular um suggestion a, a one thing i'll i'll take a, a further look at it and see if I, we can even come up with we'll get our graphics guys on it we'll create uh, the ideal or at least our ideal new version of coors field i think that'd be fun one one interesting thing because if, if you look at at the layout of coors field it, it's it's almost still a true diamond like it's almost still a square so you could turn everything turn 180 so uh, basically center field center field becomes home plate now again it, it would look it would look no. awful but you we could do that and they'd be facing the wrong direction and that would bother me but yeah yeah and you have the you have the sun coming in the batter's eyes a little bit but it should be noted that uh originally when they were coming up with the plans in Coors field 
that was one of the options was they said, okay, we could have home plate where center field is, or we could have it where it currently is. And again, those of you that are down at the ballpark as frequently uh, as you are, if, if home plate would have been in center field, well, you know, where's the ticket office? Like where, where's the foot traffic for people? You have to walk down those stairs and basically oh, a home wow. plate is in a parking lot. Like that's no good. Like yeah, you, you understand why the stadium is oriented that Everything way on 20th is, yeah. and Blake. It all, it all flows in through there. So that's that wouldn't cool. happen, but what if, right? But it could, it could. Yeah. Get, get creative with it. Send, send it to us. We'll, uh, we'll check it out. We're at Patrick D. Lyons, at Drew Creaseman, at DNVR underscore Rockies. You can email us, Drew, at uh, thednvr.com and Patrick at thednvr.com. I didn't want to mention a couple other things before we sign off, but just want to let everybody know, if you're going to hit us up with your design ideas, that's where you got to do it. And we will share ours with you at some point in the future. We got to talk a little bit about the boys with the wacky sticks. One of my favorite ways to use a wacky stick is virtually on the WGTGolf.com. I head on over to the DNVRGolf.com and you download it totally for free on your laptop, on your phone. It's really fun to play. It's really easy to get into, but difficult to master. And you can get into weekly weekend tournaments with us. Sometimes there's even cash money at the end of those tournaments. Uh, last week, somebody walked away with 200 bucks for first place. Someone walked away with 100 bucks in cash for second place. And third place got a DNVR shirt, a hat, and a sticker pack of Ooh. their choice. All for, again, playing a free and very fun video game. Uh, if you're into golf, it's definitely for you because you can play at real-life locations like St. Andrews and Bethpage Black. You play closest to the hole or full stroke play. They got all kinds of real gear and swag you can deck yourself out in. It's just a great deal of fun. And they're the official sponsor of DNVR Gaming. People over at WGT Golf know what they're doing. So come hang out with us and have some fun playing it. It's a good time. Use those mashy niblets. When you said wacky sticks, it made me Maybe think of hockey. I thought we were going to do a plug for uh, the uh, our big NHL draft show tomorrow. Make sure you're you're following along with that so you can hear uh, the future Colorado Avalanche players with Rudo and, and AJ. They got some some fantastic draft coverage tomorrow. I'm excited. Yeah, that's going to be fantastic. I think I'm going to be playing some role in that, uh, but uh, a very minor one. So I'll be around for NHL draft coverage. I won't to say I would be contributing, but it would probably be uh, a bit heavy, It'd be a little bit much, a bit of an oversell. And one name to look out for too, if if there, there's a kid out there named Russell, that if he gets drafted, um, he could do some big things. He could do some big, I can't really pronounce his name. He might be Swedish. I'm not sure, but uh, apps have some options. He shouldn't. So you yeah, have done your homework on NHL prospects. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, I was checking out the NHL prospects. Okay. All right, Drew. Drew's on it. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the wacky stick boys, or as you might call them hitters, um, <laughs> Patrick, I, I think one of the things that's always been, uh, difficult to assess in this whole Coors Field conundrum thing is, is there a type of hitter who's going to succeed at Coors Field more than they do in other places? One with a bat, um, one with a baseball bat. I think that's all you need. That's all you're required. Well, that be certainly successful. depends on your your definition of success, right? Because 
by certain raw numbers, you would be led to believe that. Though, as I am going through and discovering, even by the raw numbers, there are very few players who've played for the Rockies and other teams who've had their best offensive season in Colorado. You would think that would be relatively common, right? That guys who've had a couple of years in Colorado and then several years other places, well, their best offensive seasons would all be in Colorado. Now, we know that's not true by WRC+. And again, we're going to dive into those numbers in the future. But what I've been a little surprised by is how infrequently guys, even just by their basic slash line or home run total slugging, where whatever stat you want to look at are having their best years in Colorado. The one, like there, there's a couple of major exceptions to that. If, if we want to get into those just really quickly, the, the big one is actually Larry Walker. That's one of the things that's so funny and interesting is we, we had to make the case for 10 years Larry Walker wasn't a Coors Field product, and he's not. But if you were to arrive at the conclusion that somebody is because they had the beginning of their career in one place, the end of their career in another place, the middle of their career in Colorado, and clearly the middle of their career, that's when all their best numbers occurred, he's that guy. He's the one guy for whom that is the case. That we what we do with that information is you know, well he was very productive in montreal too that's not he was and in st louis he just had his absolute best years in colorado and it, it and was also no, the middle of his prime precisely <laughs> yeah yeah middle, you know, middle of his prime yeah like you, you nailed it for sure I, I i think you can and that's kind of the point is i think you can pretty easily explain that one away by he was also just extraordinary um and pretty much throughout his entire career, and he was never bad at the plate. So the fact that, you know, he was a little bit better when he was in Colorado and during his prime shouldn't be a surprise to anybody. Then there's another guy who fits a very similar bill, who did play in other places, and his offensive numbers were much worse than they were in Colorado. But again, if you were paying attention to his career, I don't think you're going to chalk it all up to the fact that, oh, man, he just got away from the friendly confines of Coors Field, and that's Troy Tulowitzki. Tougher case study there because he spent the vast majority of his productive years in Colorado. After he left, he was injured and within a couple of years retired. So... We may not have enough data to definitively say that Troy Tulowitzki wasn't a Coors Field product. But again, it's very suspect to say, well, his best offensive years were out there at Coors Field. It's like, hmm, yeah, but his worst offensive years were when he had no hips or knees. So that's probably tough. The, the definition of a Coors Field product has obvious meaning right now. But I, I suppose that maybe at some point in the future when we know you know more about about analytics and you know uh the human condition the the human body as as much as we do know about how our bodies work and how they operate we know like a fraction like we where does cancer come from like how can we just magically right. snap our fingers or take it like we know 
We know nothing. We, we still right. know nothing. We're not that far gone from, you know, putting leeches on our body to try to cure it different things. wasn't that long ago. Totally. And in fact, totally we, we've right. even had, we even had the <laughs> billionaire creators of some of the <clears throat> most amazing technology in the world thinking that he can fight his illness by lighting a candle and eating, chewing on a piece of mint when, okay, you can combine Western medicine with Eastern medicine, et cetera, et cetera. But the bottom line is, I mean, we could get to a point in which we understand a Coors Field product to be, you know, a guy who has certain benefits on the field statistically, but suffers physically because of it. And in fact, you know, hearing you talk about Troy Chulowitzki and thinking about how, well, there's really not much data to really talk about during his time in, in Toronto and maybe, what, two games in, in New York with the Yankees. Yeah. But, it, but it reminded me a lot of players from the 70s and 80s whose careers were eaten up or impacted from playing on artificial turf, you know, having, having turf toe. And, you know, play, it literally is, you know, artificial turf at that time in the 70s and 80s during, you know, the concrete donut era of professional sports was concrete with just a thin strip of carpeting on top of it. And so the wear and tear it, it would have on these players was just, you know, astronomical. And it's, it's amazing that Ozzie Smith was even able to do a backflip without blowing his knees out every single time. So again, we, we look at what Troy Tulowitzki went through and how much, and, and it, it might be, might be a hundred years, don't know. But at some point we might find out that, well, a lot of that had to do with the fact that he was playing at 5,000 feet above sea level and either no human should, should have to deal with something like that over a long period of time or had, you know, he simply taking, you know, this supplement or whatever it is, you know, and, and so right now, again, we know a course field product is, but eventually down the line, it could mean something totally different of like, you know what, I don't want to be a course field product because there's going to be a serious cost on my physical health. And that's just simply not worth it. And I think Troy Tulowitzki could be the, the most perfect example of that. Yeah. And, and there are others for sure. Carlos Gonzalez is, is another guy, I think, in that category. That yeah. The more we look about it, the more we'll find. Uh, but I do think that it's important that I provide everybody with the big, gigantic counterexample and also recognize that I have fallen victim to this as much as anybody. I did it specifically with Daniel Murphy in the acquisition where you go, wow, that guy's a career X hitter. You put that bat at Coors Field, yep. there's more space. He's gonna; Those numbers are going to bump up a little bit. And I'm here to tell you, friends, there is one example of this having ever happened that I can find. Now, I want to throw it out to you. If you can find another one, this is an ongoing research project. I'm not putting the absolute statement like I did before about the outfield's got to be small. I have found one. If you can find another player who did this thing that we all convince ourselves they're all going to do. We convince ourselves every hitter who the Rockies acquire in free agency or through a trade is going to come here and start to rake um, or that their numbers will at least be bumped up by the, by the help of Coors Field. His name is Michael Kadir. You remember it. You remember it fondly. What an extraordinary man was Michael Kadir. Uh, is Michael Kadir. He's not, he's not a baseball player anymore. He's still – Still a great guy. It, I would he say. just recently got on Twitter too, so yeah, oh, he? he would love a follow. Yeah, he did. Um, uh, well, you know, several months ago, but 
I figured it was either Justin Morneau or Michael Kadir is one of those two guys. Morneau, because he was so good in Minnesota, yeah. did not have his best years in Correct. Colorado. He had good years in Colorado. He put up a 181 WRC plus eight one year in Minnesota or something like that. He's like a 125 guy in, in Colorado. MVP? But, MVP? Uh, but Kadir, dramatically. His best offense, and he had some good years in Minnesota too. He had he had one or two very good years in Minnesota, but he never flirted with hitting three thirty anywhere but in Colorado. So there were a lot of these guys in the '90s where like Bichette and Castilla and Galarraga uh, appeared to be Coors Field products, and uh, because their numbers all went up, kind of like Larry Walker's went up, but they were all guys who were entering their primes. Turns out. They could hit. Galarraga didn't stop hitting home runs when he went to the Braves. Burks didn't stop hitting great when he went to San Francisco. Uh, Bichette, maybe there's an argument there. Yeah. But, um, he dropped, he, he dropped had, a lot quicker than the other guys, I think. Yeah, he had his best years in Colorado. So maybe it's Bichette and Kadir. But again, opposed to Ian Desmond, Daniel Murphy, Mark Scudero, then all the and then that's just the list of you know there's a longer list of players who have been mediocre. Those are the ones who have been bad, <laughs> who've been straight up. Their worst seasons have come in Colorado, which is another weird thing. So we're gonna have a lot of time to dive into all of it, Patrick. But like that's there is an answer to this question. I think, like you said, out there and just no one no one knows what it is yet. So we're gonna do our best to at least make headway here. And, and I think for the Rockies, they're, they're the, they're the, going to be the first ones that figure this out. You know, sure. Obviously they've, got better, data they've <laughs> got, they've got better data. They've got better resources. You know, I, I am not uh, an Ivy league uh, mathematician uh, as are several people in front offices all around baseball. That's kind of the trend. And I think, you know, this week we might even be touching on that for, uh, one of our DNVR Rockies podcasts talking about, you know, what does it mean to be a general manager? What candidates are out there if Colorado happens to go that way? Um, but yeah, I mean, the ability to, again, use all that data, use all uh, money and resources to try and kind of figure out, you know, what works best. You know, it was, it was again, recent in, in the history of baseball. We're now in the, you know, almost what uh 120 world series already that we've had uh we're getting close to that number this year and you know it's it's only in the recent memory that we've realized the importance of on base percentage and slugging percentage because you know for the object to win the game is score more runs than the other guy if you have more runs you win okay well what if you have more hits well, that only translates to winning, you know, maybe 53% of the time. Okay, so that's good. You want guys who can get hits. All right, well, what about just an overall better batting average? So you maybe you're more selective. Okay, you didn't have more hits, but you had a better batting average. Then, sure, you win 54% of the time. And again, that, that magic number is just the on-base plus slugging. So you're getting on base or you're not making an out. Again, that's, that's part of what Moneyball showed is is an area that was undervalued and just the simple realization that you just the object of of baseball is to not make an out and if you don't make outs you score more you score runs and then you score more than the other guy you win at least on the offensive side 
Right. The, so, those are the two most important commodities in baseball. And I feel like oftentimes this gets lost, oddly enough, in, in the advanced metric yeah. conversation. They're the two most valuable commodities in baseball. The run, and the reason you know the run is the most valuable is because in any close game that's before the ninth inning, any team will trade an out for a run, and you'll trade two outs for a run most of the time. Anytime you can get a run on the board, that's an extraordinarily important play. The other, recording an out. Outs or and runs. avoiding it. That simple. Outs and runs. And so on-base percentage tackles that. And then uh, slugging percentage also tackles the runs because if you're hitting extra bases, you are that much closer towards home plate and thus scoring a run. So, again, it's, it's we've only recently kind of figured that out, uh, at least publicly. I'm sure front offices had been looking at that for such a long time. So the Rockies are going to be the ones to solve this. But And and that's really – that that's the story of this offseason. That's the story of this franchise right now is figuring out Coors Field and figuring out how to be successful at a mile high. Right. And, and I think, you know, the other thing is understanding why is it important for – you the fan. Okay, it's important for Jeff Breidich and Dick Monfort, of course, to solve this problem. They've got to build the team. But why you the fan? Well, for the same reason anything else, right? You want to be able to make the most informed decisions when they make an acquisition or they make a decision. They decide to go in any different direction. If they end up doing something as controversial as trading Nolan Arenado, you want to be able to look at what players have they brought back in and how does this match up to what we're learning about Coors Field? Does it relate at all? Is it keeping this in mind? The, the point that I, I think I want to be the biggest takeaway of this is to keep this element of it in mind for everything they do. Like I said at the very beginning, the same way we keep in mind how Jeff Breidich impacts the team every single day, despite the fact that he doesn't put on a uniform or throw a single pitch or swing the bat at all. Same thing with Bud Black, that we've got to think about the ballpark and the stats and how that's impacting the conversation and the markets and what needs to be done to address it. So every time the Rockies do anything, it's worth asking the question, what does this do to help solve the Coors Field conundrum? And if the answer to that question is nothing, it might be a suspect move. Precisely because I'm, I'm again. I'm trying to be like the devil's advocate and say, "Well, Drew, Patrick, it's pretty obvious. They just need better players. How? Who? H- how do you get better players? Who are better players? Yes, you could buy. You could you could basically go out and just say, look, listen, Scott Boris, Casey Close, all the agents out there, tell us what the best offer is. We just want to get this wrapped up by the second week in November. So tell us what what it's going to take, and we'll sign that guy. Hey, Rocky signed Trevor Bauer to a nine-year, $350 million deal. Done. JT Riamuto, what did you need now? Okay, you needed uh, – well, you're a catcher. We're only going to give you eight years, but we'll also give you $300 million. Like that, that in and of itself actually wouldn't necessarily even guarantee the Rockies would be that much better, even if they did it with five or six guys, and which they can't do that. So again, it goes into more of that. And again, we talked about it last week of like everyone can look at the, you know, the not not the standings, but everyone can look at the the league leaders in RBI, batting average, all of these categories and say, okay, these guys are obviously the best. Great. There's only there's only 10 guys to go in the top 10. Right. Who is outside the top 50 or top 100 
that will be on that list next year. Right. And, and had certain factors prevent them from being that successful. And not even just injury factors, just whatever it is. That's what analytics does. It allows you to find value where others don't see it. And it's very hard in the game when 20 to 25 other front offices and, and ownership groups are investing much more highly than you are. And therefore, you go, hey, we have an opportunity to make this trade. Sure, we'll take that guy. But the, the person on the other end of the phone has that much more money or has invested that much more in analytics. And you didn't realize that what you had was worth even more than what you're getting. And that's, that's part of the, the challenge that the Rockies are up against each and every day. Totally. I mean, to tie it back in and, and finish off on this point, I think to the, I didn't tackle in the article too much, the DJ LeMayhew, you know, decision to, to leave though. I, I did kind of put it in the article that, it was, you know, he valued himself properly and nobody in baseball did, but the Rockies, and this is the part I've never said before, should have. Now, they should have because they should have known their ball player better than anybody else. I've defended the fact that they didn't give him more money than anybody else was willing to give him and they didn't give him more years. And it's entirely possible they couldn't have. And that's where I'd have to back off my day. Like, it's entirely possible they literally didn't have the money on hand. But if they did, they just made a giant evaluation error. The same evaluation error that everyone else in baseball made. But it was uniquely bad for them because they should have known their player. And why was I able to go on with John Boy and them and predict that DJ LeMahieu was going to be a superstar in New York the Colorado Rockies weren't. I and, and I don't know that that they couldn't have given him that money. Now, obviously, we know there are certain, building that in to say sure because I understand there are certain budget constraints and you can only spend what you're going to spend. But again, if you are evaluating this, and I don't, I don't think seeing what DJ Lemayhu has done the past two years in New York, and especially after reading your article about the specifics that go into those numbers, I don't think it was the shock of like, no one could have expected it. Just no one could have expected it. People should have expected it. And yeah. I'm sure there were teams out there that that did, you know, for, for all we know, the Milwaukee Brewers could have been a team that at the time they said, well, look, we got Keston Huera at second base. And, you know, this this just isn't a move we need to make. But man, he's going to make somebody really good next season in, in these particular areas. So you could look and say, so, so again, I, I don't think that they, they couldn't have made that move. I think again, if they would have done a better job evaluating, they might have seen a couple open inroads and say, all right, well, if we keep LeMahieu, we're blocking McMahon and Rogers Hampson, he can play multiple positions. That's fine. But what deals could 